Welcome to the Read, Talk, Grow podcast, where we explore women's health topics through books. In the same way that books can transport us to a different time, place, or culture, Read, Talk, Grow demonstrates how books can also give a new appreciation for health experiences and provide a platform from which women's health can be discussed. At Read, Talk, Grow, we use books to learn about health conditions in the hopes that we can all lead happier, healthier lives. I'm your host, Dr. Denise Milstein. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, where I practice women's health, internal medicine, and integrative medicine. I am always reading, and I love discussing books with my patients, my professional colleagues, and now with you. Today's guests are Chris Malcolm Belk, who's the author of The Natural Mother of the Child, a memoir of non-binary parenting. His essays have been featured in Granta, Guernica, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. Chris lives in Philadelphia with his partner and their young children. My other guest is Dr. Caroline Davidge Pitts, who is an associate professor of medicine and associate practice chair of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Nutrition at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. She's the medical director of the Transgender and Intersex Specialty Care Clinic and is a leader in national groups focused on these topics. Her research interests center around long-term effects of gender-affirming hormone therapy, and she works to improve medical education on transgender health. Welcome you both to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. So Chris, last year I was on NetGalley and I saw that your audiobook of The Natural Mother of the Child was available. So I requested it and your publisher was kind enough to grant me access to it. And I experienced your book as an audiobook, which you actually read. Just this week in preparation for talking with you, I read the physical book and I have to say it's a very different experience. So before we delve into the healthcare topics, give us a little insight into how different your book is as an audiobook compared to the really creative and amazing format in its physical form. I love to start off with a craft question. When I was writing the book, I was really thinking of it in the form of like a scrapbook or a family photo book where I was compiling family documents and all the legal documents that had accumulated in my family from adopting our children. And then I, I legally changed my name in 2017. And then my partner and I have gotten married a couple of times because of the changing marriage laws. So I, I really compiled it as like a compendium of documents and wrote around and against the documents. And then I love audiobooks and I was very excited that my book sold in audio, but it was a very different experience recording the audio. I really just read it straight through. And if you purchase the audiobook, you can get a PDF of some of the images, but it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't quite align the same way. So I do think that readers' experience probably varies quite a lot. I'll say that in the audio version, you are getting my voice. That was really important to me that a trans reader read the book. I like that it's me because I think I'm good at reading, but anyone with like, I have, I think a very stereotypical trans masculine voice. So I was glad to be able to do that and bring that extra layer. But ultimately I think the pictures are really essential to understanding the full scope of the book. 
I enjoyed it as an audiobook. I just didn't appreciate how different it was going to be in its physical form. So thank you for giving us some insight. I'm a huge audiobook reader because it just is an efficient way for me to read while I'm getting other things done. So I really thought it was wonderful, truly in both forms. Dr. David Pitts, your work centers on the care of transgender and intersex patients. Tell us how you came to work in these arenas, because we all know the world needs more people like you. Absolutely. So as I'm not sure if it probably was in your introduction, but I'm South African. So excuse the accent, but yeah, so we moved to the US in 2008 when I did residency. So prior to that, I'd spent obviously my, my whole life in South Africa. And I remember clearly through medical school, you know, having experiences in very rural, low-income communities. And I have this very standout event um, in my mind as, you know, a medical student just coming, you know, onto the wards. And I remember in one of our kind of emergency department visits, I met a trans woman um, who had come to the clinic for or the ED for other reasons. But, you know, she was clearly struggling with a lot of health issues related to having low income status and then also being uh, you know, gender diverse in probably a community at that time who was very unaccepting and also not having the access to care clearly that she needed with respect to hormone therapy. And gosh, I thought to myself at that time, I would love to help this person so much more than this particular moment in the ED. I've always loved reductive health. And as I continued my journey in medical school, I was also exposed to a lot of what Costa Semenya, who's a South African runner, had gone through as part of her process to become a competitive runner. It was such a pivotal moment for me at that time as well, because I thought to myself, gosh, I would love to be on a panel of experts for Costa so that I can, you know, advocate for her and what what she is looking to do, you know, in her athletic career. So these moments really shaped me, even though they were such discrete moments. And so I was so fortunate when I completed my fellowship here at Mayo that my colleague uh, Todd Nippelt was, you know, starting the our transgender clinic in, in 2015. And I remember speaking to our chair at that time and I said, this is what I want to do, this. I have been involved with our trans clinic now since 2015, since it opened. And we have now seen, you know, over 1,500 patients at this point. And we provide a, a full service under one roof with respect to gender care. And it has been the best decision and the best career path for me as possible. And it's been a true honor. Chris, the book's subtitle is A Memoir of Non-Binary Parenthood, but you start your experience with the fertility clinic sitting there with your older son, Sean, and you move through the medical aspects of your pregnancy, which are traumatic and really medicalized, you say no one ever mentions the pregnancy or the child. They talk about your results or the scan. What do you want our listeners to know about approaching that process, things they should be thinking about as they start the fertility journey? 
It's so interesting to think about now, just because I was writing the book quite some time ago. You know, it takes a couple of years for books to be published and then out in the world. And the book came out in 2021. So when I got pregnant with my son, Samson, um, in 2012, I got pregnant in 2012 and had him in 2013. I was not seeking fertility care because I was infertile. I didn't have any fertility problems that were known. So that clinic is a pretty large scale reproductive endocrinology clinic that I think they have a lot of queer clients, but generally are not, you know, that's not, that wouldn't be the bulk of the practice. So I felt very much like I was being treated similarly to folks who'd been trying to get pregnant for a very long time. And that just wasn't the case I was in. We just needed assistive fertility because we needed sperm. We don't, our relation by married to a cis woman. So we both, you know, have uterus and, and eggs. But then later on, I'm now 36 weeks pregnant, like at the moment, which I, yeah, I don't know if that, yeah. And I actually found out when I tried to conceive this time that I have diminished ovarian reserve. So my endocrinologist, who's the same one that I saw 10 years ago, did not think that I had a very good chance of getting pregnant with my own eggs this time. So I'm actually pregnant with a baby that's um, Anna's baby. We did, I think most people would call it like reciprocal IVF. My insurance at the time covered egg donation from a live donor to treat infertility. So I was extremely fortunate to be able to access that medical care. And that, and then I was very grateful that my care was medicalized because I had a medical need for it. So I guess at the end of the day, it's difficult because you can't control the scale of the practice that you're using. And I saw an endocrinologist who is very, who is very trans and queer competent. So that was my primary goal, but that doesn't really change the attitudes of like the nursing staff or the front desk staff. Like they're just seeing so many people for monitoring every day that it just was not particularly catered care when I first got the care. I will say that I think it was a little different the second time because I had been on testosterone for a number of years and was like male presenting in a way that perhaps the first time I, I had not been, I was more androgynous. And I do think that the staff was, I don't know if I would say nicer to me, but they all remembered my name, which I don't think would be true. If you have 20 women coming for blood work in the morning and one dude, you're going to remember the guy's name. So I did feel like it was a, a little bit more like catered towards me the second time, probably just because of the beard and my voice and, and stuff like that. But I, but I do think that ultimately when I talk with healthcare providers about the healthcare that I've received, I really think individualizing the way that you're addressing people is going to solve a lot of the problems that come up, whether that's, you know, not treating someone who doesn't have a fertility diagnosis as if they're infertile and acting like it's this like opaque procedure that they, they can't get excited about or whatever the case may be, which is how I felt with the first kid or in the pediatrician's office, not calling people mom and dad, if you're not sure that that, you know, just take a second to look at the person's name because it appears under the child's name. And I think anything you can do to individualize how you're addressing someone is going to stop a lot of those problems and will probably save time because it takes two seconds to prepare on the front end versus fixing the problems on the back end. Chris, I totally agree with you. So, you know, when we had initially formed our clinic here, you know, we had kind of developed this bubble where everyone, you know, was affirming, you know, the front desk staff was, was trained and, 
you know, we had a lot of good feedback that things were going well, but you realize that you can't live in this bubble in healthcare and that, you know, what if, what if our patients were coming for abdominal pain, you know, and they're not going to necessarily come to our corridor up in the endocrinology where, you know, everything was really kind of well thought out. And so in the, in the last five years or so, it's been a, a really big initiative of ours to kind of extend that education on all these types of things that you've just brought up to a, on a larger scale. And, you know, the challenges that, that come with that, you know, if you think about even in like the OR or like the unit where you recover after surgery and how many people are involved in each of these kind of person-to-person -person interactions, it's a huge challenge, especially when you have a larger institution. And it's all the more reason that we need just to continue to advocate that this, you know, will be done because, you know, we want that experience to be the same for any person coming for healthcare, no matter where they go in that healthcare institutional clinic. Well, congratulations. Yeah. This is so oh, exciting. Thank you. thank you so much. What's one more, you know? <laughs> This is now your fourth and a pretty big gap between this one and the, is it ZZ? Yeah, ZZ is about to turn seven. So it's been a minute. I don't remember how to hold a baby or do any of the things. My partner is a labor and delivery nurse. So she is a baby expert, but I am far from that. So I'm, I'm hoping that we ease back into it pretty seamlessly this time. I think on the fourth, it's kind of like riding a bike. I'm sure you're going to be up to skills within moments of the, the baby coming into the world. So in the book with your first pregnancy, you mentioned moving to a neighborhood and one of the neighbors said to a friend of yours, I think the man in that couple is pregnant. I imagine that's a, a comment or uh, something that maybe the world is more open-minded now, hopefully, but Tell us a little bit about what that's like and how you've learned to navigate those comments or those glances. This time is very different. We still live in the same home and neighborhood that we did the first time. So people kind of know me now. I had really just moved, I moved there in my third trimester. I moved to this home in my third trimester with my first pregnancy and I moved from an area of Philadelphia that's like extremely queer to this neighborhood, which is a little bit different. But I think this time I was much more proactive about getting out ahead of it and telling everyone before I was visibly pregnant that like we're having a fourth baby and I'm the one who's pregnant just so like it would not be surprising because now I have school age children. So I'm just like in touch with a lot more neighbors and people in the community it was a little bit difficult. I recently left uh, an office job in a medical clinic that I had had for about three years on a very large team. So the people that I worked with every day, again, I got out ahead of it and kind of was telling everyone that like, you know, Anna and I are having another baby and I'm the pregnant one, just like so that it, it wasn't strange when I started looking pregnant. But in terms of the nursing staff that I, I didn't know everyone's name and they wouldn't necessarily know my name. I was just some guy who had a desk job there. Like I, I was just like, I guess they're, I guess it's just going to be slightly confusing for people and that's going to have to be fine. I remember seeing Anna be pregnant twice, how she described it as like a very public thing where people would frequently like comment on her body and come up and talk to her and 
when she was working, her patients would ask, how far along are you? And is it a boy or a girl? And they would just start conversations. Not one person has talked to me in public about it. I've never had a single person bring it up this time. And I'm like a fairly small framed person. So I think it's obvious that I'm pregnant. I'm just not just like a fat guy. It's not a beer belly. I think I'm very obviously pregnant, but I think living in a major city where there's lots of queer and trans folks, I think people are afraid to be wrong or to say something wrong. So nobody says anything, which I honestly am pretty happy with. I think that last time when I was a little bit more androgynous presenting, I did have more people kind of chat me up about it. And that felt slightly uncomfortable to me, which I think is not like a an experience limited to trans people at all. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea that their body exists for public consumption for this time. So I feel super fortunate. I have felt nervous that I would have to seek medical care for some other reason, right? Like whether it was like a tooth breaking or, you know, I had to go to urgent care because I was in an accident. I, that has been a big anxiety for me that I would have to present for medical care that was not related to the pregnancy, because I think that's a space where I've felt pretty uncomfortable in the past, but that has luckily not happened. My health luck has been really great (laughs) during pregnancy. So I haven't had to go to a place where I would have to like actually explain the pregnancy. It's just, it's, it's just kind of been like closed in my community in a way that's been really nice. I think it's interesting. There's I guess a couple of ways or several ways to see that where when Anna was pregnant and people would say, how far along are you? And in some ways they're sharing her joy, perhaps at some points it's people being nosy, but it's probably speaking to your personality that even though you're an author and have put your memoir publicly into the world, you're not necessarily wanting people in your personal business, but I suspect there are other transgender males who are pregnant who would like people to share their joy with them because it takes effort and it's an exciting time. Yeah, I would imagine that that's really difficult. I feel lucky that I have a pretty social life, so I have people to share it with. And it's also just so far from my first child, like our, you know, my first parenting experience was with Anna giving birth to Sean and that was, you know, we had a baby shower and it was just like, it was much more of a life changing and not that a fourth baby isn't life changing, but just, you know, it was much more of a public and monumental event. And we were the first of our friends to have children because we were in our twenties. And this time I'm just kind of like, you know, I don't know anyone who lives in my neighborhood who has four children. All my kids' friends are only, so there's two children and three is a lot. So I think regardless of how a fourth baby came around. I'm one of six. And I think by the fourth one, nobody was really making a huge deal out of my mom having a baby. So I feel like it's a mixture of those, like, I'm afraid to say something awkward to this trans guy who I think is pregnant, but I'm not 100% sure. And also these people already have a bunch of kids and this is kind of old, old news for them. There they go again. Caroline, talk a bit about how you help your patients select birth centers or how to get care during pregnancy? Yeah, I might I might back up first a little bit on that question because I think one of the struggles I see with you know healthcare providers in general is they really struggle to get past like really basic questions when it comes to fertility, contraception, and family planning. 
So, you know, the question might be, well, you know, something that people might learn in med school is, you know, are you thinking about having a family one day? And, you know, that's very much a yes or no answer and really doesn't get into the specifics of what that family might look like. And so, you know, I challenge a lot of healthcare providers to really try, you know, obviously if it's appropriate, to get into more specifics about how someone envisions their family, you know, someday. So, you know, a little bit to what Chris was saying. So when someone says that they would like a kid, you know, do they want a kid with their own biological material or are they thinking about more an adoption process? You know, you would have a very different conversation with someone about that depending on which way they would answer. And then, you know, who's going to carry the child? Um, what does feeding the child look like for your family? So all these kind of different layers of how well, we love the modern family and how every family can be different. And that's something to be celebrated and so great. But I think as a healthcare provider, you can't help that person and their family if you don't really understand where they envision that moving forward. Here at Mayo, we started to see a lot of issues with our transmasculine patients who were pregnant in the sense of they were fearful of getting care. So Chris, you mentioned how for your general health care needs, that might be a, an uncomfortable space. We were unfortunately starting to see our pregnant patients coming in really late in pregnancy because they really just weren't sure how to even navigate a healthcare system where, you know, they were you know, presented very masculine. And so we actually had a full meeting with our birthing center and, you know, how can we support our transmasculine patients so that both dad and the baby are healthy. And we uh, ended up making patient education material that we've now given out to, you know, all our family medicine providers, you know, our OBGYNs, we've provided um, education. And so we're really trying to have specific information for both patients and healthcare providers so that we can support this group. Because yeah, if we can reduce that fear, if it's we as healthcare providers can make a comfortable space for everybody who's pregnant, then you know that's only going to lead to successful outcomes for everybody. Let's talk about the parental figures in your life, Chris. You talk about your father, your in-laws, some of whom didn't entirely embrace your life as a transgender man. You write about it with grace, but certainly it's not a unique experience to you. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And in, in the book I write about both Anna's parents and my parents, her mom actually died in the book. I write about her mom dying of um, brain cancer a little bit of something that, because I think one of the key things about writing a memoir about like having a baby and being a parent is other stuff's happening too, right? There's stuff happening in the world and other people's problems are kind of coming into your life. So I think Anna was raised in Poland and came to the U.S. in middle school and I think was from a very insular and religious family that didn't really like get what was happening with our family. It was kind of like, all right, well, you're telling us you're gay and now you're with this lady, but now you're telling us that it's not a lady anymore. And that's just a lot to wrap our minds around. And I think although her parents, they were excited for us to have children, I think they had a lot of fears about what that would mean for them, kind of not having completely understood the context in which we were raising our kids in which like, it's not, it's just like not really the biggest 
problem in their life. They're concerned about whether they're going to get like enough video game time. Like the, they're just not worried about whether their parents are trans or not. I think with my parents, it's very interesting because growing up as the oldest of six kids, it's like, yes, I had some difficulty kind of like telling them about my queerness and having them like understand and accept the level to which I was masculine. And then like my decision to take hormones and present more as male. But I do think that having children has healed a lot of the old problems because they are like very actively involved grandparents and they were very excited to have grandchildren. And my family of origin has a lot of like folks who came to the family in ways other than through like the nuclear family structure. So they were like, yeah, we don't care who's related to whom or any of that. We're good. We're just like excited. And I'm the only one of my siblings who has children. So it's like that, you know, they're the only grandchildren in the family. And that's super exciting. I do think that it's been a little bit of an adjustment for my parents to watch me parent my children in a way that's like obviously aware of the things that I think I wish I had had, right? There are a lot of things that in my childhood were really great. It was like very active and rambunctious and just like loud. And I love that, like, you know, it every day felt like a holiday because there were so many of us like that was a really fun part of growing up. I did feel like very restricted in my gender presentation and my family's religious. So I was like kind of in that religious tradition. And my kids have had a lot more like flexibility in what they're allowed to wear and what how they're allowed to think about their own gender and relationships to each other. And they have always called me by my first name, which I'm sure horrified my parents at first. So I think, you know, they've had to kind of adjust, but I do think that Although in writing about the way that they parented me as a child, there's obvious wishes that I had, like that things had been different. I think that they've been like amazing parents to an adult, like really a great model of how to accept that your child is an adult and they're going to make adult decisions. And if you want them in your life, then you're just going to have to kind of like roll with those. Not that if I, if I was making a truly terrible or dangerous decision, I know they'd say something, but if it's like, Chris is going to just let his kids wear dresses, even though they're assigned male at birth. And we're just going to have to not say anything because if we say something, then we won't, we won't have the relationship that we have anymore. Like that has been really nice and it's been really great and healing to see that they have been flexible in a way that they certainly were not when I was growing up. We make a lot of assumptions about how people will respond and how willing they would be to change, but you're describing a situation where, while it's not perfect from the get-go, given people the chance and the grace to come along with how things might be different than they thought they were going to be, they too can be loving, supportive, engaged, and excited about the expanding family. So Chris, you mentioned a bit about uh, starting testosterone after you had Samson. Caroline, this is a process that you walk many, many people through. Talk a little bit about that. At Mayo Clinic, we follow something called the WPAP Standards of Care, which is a fairly large document that outlines, you could say, best practices for healthcare centered around uh, transgender gender diverse health. 
there's actually a, an updated standards of care that was just released within the last week or so that outlines what's deemed criteria for initiation of hormone therapy and then also surgical care, whatever that surgical care might look like. I would say from a hormone therapy standpoint, we really try to break down the barriers with respect to access to hormone therapy. And so as long as someone doesn't have any medical or mental health issues that could be interfered with by hormones, which is actually not many, you know, and we've shown that that individual has persistent gender incongruence, then we really, as I said, try to break down those barriers to access. And so, of course, in, in the medical side, we do that full medical evaluation for anything that could be exacerbated by hormone therapy. And, you know, if nothing is found and that individual has gender incongruence, then we usually can proceed with uh, hormone therapy at that time. Um, here at Mayo, we do have a lot of behavioral health support. And this has really optimized the journey for that individual. So we realize that, you know, and an individual thinking about their embodiment goals, you know, it's one part when we're thinking about those physical changes that will occur. But we realize, that, you know, of course, that there is all the social aspects of things, right? So, you know, coming out to friends and family and how does that change relationships and how do you tell your kids, you know, if you have kids already? And, and so we really try and embody that team environment where we can support all our patients, you know, depending on what their goals are going to be. And so we actually have a close relationship with our patients on hormones. We will see them, you know, every three months for that first year, and we'll ensure each time at that visit, you know, that things are going as, as planned, that there are no concerns. You know, when it comes to sort of fertility and family, then when we have to have more discussions, you know, we always at the, at the start will have a discussion about how hormones impact fertility and what it would look like if someone chooses not to, let's say, pursue fertility at that time and may want to do it later in their, in their life. And then, of course, what it would look like for that individual, depending on their family needs, if they may or may not need to stop their hormones for a period of time. And once again, how can we support that person? Number one, if they have to come off their hormones, that can be a very stressful event for you know, individuals, particularly who've been on hormones for a while. And then also, you know, ensuring that, you know, individuals who, who are pregnant, whether it's planned or not, that that doesn't also exacerbate some dysphoria um, during that time. So supporting them through the pregnancy and birthing and feeding. So it's just really making sure we're the, you know, partners to those individuals the whole way through. I just want to highlight one of the first things that you said, which is that the guidelines were just updated. So if someone is seeking initiation of hormone therapy, they would probably want to make sure that their team is utilizing the late 2022 guidelines and not anything that was prior to that, because it's something that gets updated fairly frequently. Yeah. Yeah. It's the last one was actually, you know, just about 10 years ago. So it was definitely due for an update. Mm -hmm. So we have to talk about the legal aspects of having to adopt your own children. In the book, you go through the documents, you go through the second parent adoption and how complicated that is, even though you and Anna have always been the parents of these three children, soon to be four. Talk a, a bit about that, Chris. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. So this is something that varies greatly state to state from my understanding, but you know, a birth certificate does not convey parentage. A queer couple who are not both the genetic parents of a child in, as far as I understand it, every state needs to go through some process to secure actual legal rights. And in most states, you still need an attorney because it's like a court appearance and a lot of filings. I think some states, like I, I know New York and Washington State and California have tried to make it easier where people can do it without the cost, especially and the hassle of um, the legal process. But we have always used an attorney and filed in court to do that and kind of showed up for ad adoption day with a lot of other kinds of families doing adoptions. So it's kind of a celebratory day here in Philadelphia adoption day for everyone, but it's also like yeah, but we're also spending all this money on doing this. And I had been lucky with our first three children. I was a public school teacher and my union benefits covered adoption costs. So my legal fees were mostly covered. I just had to pay court filing fees. That is not, I'm no longer a public school teacher. So it's going to be significantly more expensive this time. It's interesting because I think that a lot of queer families that I've talked to, the parents will be very like offended by the machinations of the court, like kind of coming into their lives, especially in states where there's like a home visit with a social worker or any of that kind of stuff. I personally, because my children are known donor conceived. So we're in touch with the person who's their um, biological dad. I don't want him to have responsibilities towards these children. And I don't think of him as like a parent figure because he's not actively parenting my children, but they're allowed to conceive of him in whatever way that they want. And I wouldn't be offended if they like considered him family or wanted to go to family read, right? Like I have a slightly more expansive view of what his role might be in their adult lives if that's what they want or their lives now they're not particularly interested right now but if they developed an interest I would be open to that so I I haven't felt like offended by it because I'm like yeah but he needs to be protected too and he needs the assurances of this system that we're not going to like come after him for child support or my kids are not going to ask him for college tuition or what have you but it is a really almost surreal process to appear in court with your family and be like, yes, we're adopting our children, but we have been taking care of them the whole time. Nothing is really changing as a result of this. You know, the fact is based on the dynamics that I described in the book and talked a little bit about earlier, we were very motivated and slightly fearful with Anna's biological children that if something happened to her, that her parents would try to take the, our children. So we were very, very, very motivated to do that. And then my biological child, Samson, wasn't adopted until he was like almost three. Because we were like, whatever, we'll get to it when we get to it. So yeah, it is, I think, a process that, you know, it's overly expensive. It's inaccessible for a lot of queer families who, you know, the cost of fertility treatment, pregnancy and birth in America, like it's child care. They're all great barriers to lower income people like accessing parenting to begin with, but then anything additional that's going to cost thousands of dollars, like a lot of families don't really get to it because it's too expensive. So I think that's a huge problem. And I do think that it should not be like stigmatizing or othering or take place in people's homes. Like I, I think it should be something that should be very accessible and affordable for families.
and it's really not where I where I live. It's not accessible. It's not affordable, and it's slightly intrusive. So I I wish it was different, but I understand why it exists in a way. Navigating just even the legal aspects of your life takes a lot more intention and attention than mine has as a cisgender heterosexual person. I'm sure that Caroline, you have had to walk through this with your patients, not only in terms of parental rights, but Chris, you mentioned getting married twice the first time because you wanted to legally be married in a, in a place that recognized your marriage as a marriage. But Caroline, tell us a little bit about some of the legal aspects of how you help your patients. Yeah, so from a um, from an endocrinologist standpoint, we will often provide letters whether the individual wants to change, you know, their name on social security or passport or driver's license, you know, birth certificates. So we provide a lot of documentation for our, our patients in that way. We're lucky here in Minnesota, a very affirming state in general. And so we usually don't run into too much trouble helping our patients with that. The other legal part that we often uh, get involved with is when insurance companies you know, have such variable coverage of certain services, um, particularly, for example, surgical services such as facial surgery. And so, you know, sometimes we will also help advocate for our patients to be able to get, you know, these life-saving and, you know, very medically necessary surgeries uh, covered and we will often utilize legal, you know, advocates and legal services to help with their case to get that covered. And so once again, that just really speaks to our, you know, our behavioral health team, social work really being involved from the start, because we can really try and help with all these additional services that are often needed. The surgeries get lumped into a more cosmetic bucket of healthcare instead of really, like you said, being medically necessary. And so takes advocacy. All right. I promised we'd talk about the food. So you start with Wawa as Sean's being born. And then there is everything, all the snacks, the milkshakes, the caramel, that is clearly a big part of your life. Chris, talk to us about what an amazing cook you must be. I really love food a lot. A lot of the writing I've been doing recently is much more like straight food writing because I found that when I was writing the book, it's a, some of the subject matter's a little heavy and it's about you know ambivalence about parenting that I think somewhat has to do with gender, but also is something that a lot of people just experience parenting regardless of their gender. But every time I would try to provide any levity or kind of you know shake scenes up, I'd be like, well, I also baked the cakes. I was right about that. So I, I feel like it's something that I gravitate towards when I'm trying to bring joy into my writing. And I find that a lot of the activities of daily parenting with young children, because my kids were very young when I wrote the book, my oldest is now 10. So I'm in like a slightly different phase of parenting where you, you do more varied activities and some of them are like having real adult conversations and, you know, things like that. But when they're little, you're like changing diapers and cleaning up after them over and over again and going on walks just so they won't mess up your house again. Like it's there. And the only thing that I like doing out of all those things is cooking. So I was like, I don't want to just complain about these kids because they didn't ask to be here. And the book makes it clear that I went out of my way to bring them here. So I want to also focus on the things that bring me joy in what I'm doing and preparing everybody meals is one of those things. 
the caveat is that my my kids are deeply spoiled in what they eat. That's you know they're not picky. They just have high standards because they get a lot of my cooking, and I've explained to them that. When someone has a baby, they're pretty incapacitated for a little while. So your mom's going to be on dinner duty for a few weeks when the baby comes and they're like, oh no, this is not, this is not ideal for us. So yeah, I really think that a lot of trans writing in general tends to be like very serious and focused. Like it, it makes a lot of sense that the writing will focus on barriers to medical care, barriers to social acceptance. But I think joy is something that people also want to read about. So that was why I wrote about cooking, because it's what I like to do. And that's really the intention of this podcast, is that even though many of the topics that we discuss are difficult, challenging, typically private or intimate, that you could take a book like yours and read it cover to cover because it really carries you through, whether it's the food or many of the things that if you haven't walked this journey, you just don't know, you didn't know. So I am so grateful to you for putting the book into the world and bringing the topic of non-binary parenthood out to those of us who are readers and are open to exploring the topic. I want to thank you both for being here on the podcast, for bringing your wisdom, your experience, and of course your book to us. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And Caroline, it was really interesting to hear about the work that you're doing. I especially was interested in the integration of behavioral health care because I feel like I'm very privileged having a healthcare person as my partner to find healthcare. Like I can kind of like ask her and she can ask people, but with behavioral healthcare, I feel like it's been pretty difficult actually to find providers wherever I've lived. So it's so helpful to have them like integrated in your practice. Absolutely. It's, I'm so appreciative of, you know, our behavioral health team and how, how they support me. You know, we've grown this greater and greater and larger and larger resource list for our patients, which, you know, is all thanks to them and their hard work and their advocacy with, you know, lawyers and finding community providers for our patients who live far away. So absolutely. I think certainly in our clinic, they, they're not, you know, a, a, a gatekeeping process or a barrier in any way. They are so integral to how we can help our patients. So I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And it's honestly such an honor to meet you. Thank you both again. I look forward to talking books, hopefully with you again sometime in the future. Thank you for joining us to talk books and health today on Read, Talk, Grow. To continue the conversation and send comments, visit the show notes or email us at readtalkgrow at mayo.edu. Read, Talk, Grow is a production of Mayo Clinic Press. Our producer is Lisa Speckhard-Pask, and our recording engineer is Rick Andreessen. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and judgment. Information presented is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional for medical assistance with specific questions pertaining to your own health if needed. Keep reading, everyone. <laughs>